word of the Lord. This is God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Which in light of this week sounds very different to me. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life or life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Well, in 1996, um, I was deployed to um, Saudi Arabia, uh, which sounds about as tropical and delightful as as you would imagine. Um, It was a couple months after there had been the Kobar Tower bombings, which meant that everybody who was stationed in the area was moved into the desert, literally the middle of nowhere at King Al-Kharj Air Base, which was basically sand with, like, sand around it. That's, that's what it was like. And uh, they had rapidly put together a tent city. And so I arrived a couple, basically about a month and a half after they had established this new area. And it was rough. I got there, it was 108 degrees the day I landed, and uh, I was added to a tent that's called an eight-man tent, where I was number 11, which I know some of you aren't really good at math, but that's more, more than eight. Um, And, uh, you know, an eight-man tent is not made for even eight, so it was tight. Every night, and every some multiple times a day, the air conditioning would go down because the power plants would blow up, or not blow up, but you know, would throw a fuse or something of that nature. And so it was hot and sticky and crowded, and, and there was nothing to do. It was literally we would we would make we would make literally castles with water boxes of water bottles, like just creative castle making among soldiers. It was a great time. There was like nine books for like a hundred of us. And so you'd finish a book and you'd, you'd hand it off to someone else and it would sit in the, in the kind of common area there and people would grab it and then it was all worn and everything. And many Grisham novels, which, you know, you can only take so many of those. Um, but it was, it was a time that was really peculiar because even though it was really difficult on everyone, there was just this sense of everyone was in it together. And there was this camaraderie, and you'd go for walks because there was no gym, and you'd find yourself going to the bathrooms, which smelled terrible, but you're all in it together. It's actually, for me, one of the most significant spiritual times I've ever had with the Lord. I read multiple books. I read the entirety of the New Testament. It was just a really transformative time for my life. That's 1996. I got home after 60 days. About six months later, I was redeployed for a short little two-week stint to train someone new on the, in, the, in the area. And so, so I arrived, and, and the place was metamorphosized. I mean, it was like a whole new place. My eight-man tent, there were only six of us in there. 
I mean, I should just tell you what was going on, how awesome it was, right? I mean, we had real mattresses. Like, it was, it was nonsense. There was an entire just entertainment set of tents. We had, we had like, you know, Mario Kart and, and, and videos, and like there was an entire library of movies and, and books, more books than you could ever read, multiple copies of multiple things. And there was this really nice gym with all the equipment you could possibly have, and, and everyone was miserable. Everyone. It was, I expected to go back, you know, and when you have a spiritual experience, you expect to go back and, you know, like the doors are going to open and the Shekinah glory of the Lord is going to appear. You know, I thought that's kind of how it would play out. It didn't play out like that. But everyone was just grumbling. It was the Israelites in the desert kind of experience. And I was, I was shocked. I was like, I was like what's going on? We have all this cool stuff now. And everyone was angry. Everyone was displeased. They'd already read that book, seen that movie, played that game, and they were done. I was tired of being there. What had been gained or what existed in the context of simplicity had been completely lost somehow in the context of abundance. There was much, and yet somehow there was way less. I thought about that as I was prepping this week on this particular sermon. Because I think that's how life works here with us, too, in many, many ways. We're in a series on rhythm, and um, we talk about rhythms, the rhythms of our lives. We're, we're talking about the fact that there's no lasting change in us without us stepping into intentional and purposeful rhythms, that we are rhythmed people made so by God for better or for worse, healthy rhythms and unhealthy rhythms we talked about it a while ago that we can't, we don't make life-giving or break life-destroying or life-taking habits easily. And so it must be something we enter in with the Lord. So now, there are two fundamental kinds of rhythms that, that most spiritual gurus talk about. There's the, there's the rhythms of engagement, which would be like what we talked about the first week on worship, or Steve talked about with prayer. These are, these are rhythms where we engage in them. And celebration or service or reading of the word like we did a year ago. And then there's disciplines or, or rhythms of abstinence. We talked about silence and solitude last week. Abstinence of fasting. It's an abstinence of food in order to experience more of God or abstinence of secrecy, the rhythm of secrecy. And this morning, we're going to talk about why a living rhythm of simplicity is pivotal to how we experience not only just a contented, but a focused and flourishing life. So, we're going to talk about our stuff this morning. And full disclosure, little confession, I have a book called Simplicity by Richard Foster that I bought several years ago because this is something that I think I was, I thought I was interested in, and I hadn't read it. I honestly wasn't sure I wanted to read it. Now I know why. 
So here's the thing. I just want to say, there are certain sermons where I'm like, hey, here's this thing that I've been thinking about and working through with the Lord, and, I'm, and here's some of the ways in which he's worked that into my life. And I just want to say, like, I'm at ground level with y'all this morning. I, I'm like, I, this, the more I've stepped into this, the more I've been like, oh, dear goodness, I know nothing about any of this. I have not been, I have not engaged with this with, with intentionality. I have not been faithful to this process. So, so like, y'all, we're starting, and we're starting together. That's kind of where it's at. So I'm just, I've just read a little bit more in advance, but I, other than pulling some stuff out of my closet, I got a whole lot of things to work on with you. So together, we're going to listen to the Spirit of the Lord through this process. This morning, we're going to talk about this idea of simplicity, or really the idea of our stuff, uh, from, from three different directions. One, we're going to talk about the problem, the problem of our stuff, the perspective that we can have for our stuff, and then the practices of simplicity with our stuff. So let's talk about the problem. Uh, the problem we're going to talk about is the rhythm of consumption, the rhythm of consumptions. What does Jesus have to say about our stuff? Well, first of all, he has a whole lot of stuff to say, so I'm going to try and narrow it down to a few key components. One of the things that's maybe clearest is what he speaks of in, in Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 15. Jesus says to them, he says, take care. Let's talk to these people. Take care. So I'm warning you, just be pay, pay attention and be on your guard against all covetousness, right? All the wanties. For, listen, one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. This is not a command. Jesus is describing how life works. This is how life works or doesn't work. It's not a command for you to turn your iPhone in and to, to get a flip phone that's a stupid phone. It's a declaration about the way the world actually Works That abundance will never be found in what hangs in our dresser, what's stored in our garage, or what's growing in our retirement account. Life that is truly life, as Paul says, isn't available there. It's just not available there. Clear declaration by Jesus, but he says more. In Mark chapter 4, uh, the famous parable of the sower, Jesus is talking about the sower who goes out and said, sows seeds. This is the word of life that's going to bring flourishing life to all. This is the sower who goes out and sows this beautiful seed, and he gets to this spot in the parable in, in verse uh, 18, and he said, and others, as he explains the parable, are the ones sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And here's the devastating words, and it proves unfruitful. It does not yield. What Jesus is saying here is that wealth and our stuff, by its very nature, is deceitful. It lies to us. It cons our hearts into a way of life that suffocates the very life of God and the very invitation and vision of God's kingdom around us. Stuff lies. Wealth lies. It doesn't tell the truth and the accumulation of stuff, which is, of course, just a manifestation of what wealth can look like and its pursuit. But these passages, they, they ultimately just point to a deeper issue. And actually, it's one that French sociologist uh, Jean Baudrillard, um, Steve Heimler always makes me say my French words French, um, right? So I, I was going to say Baudrillard, but then he'd give me a hard time. So 
This is what this sociologist says. He argues that in the West, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He says he points out that atheism actually hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. Which means that the cultural air that we breathe whispers to us that we can get our meaning in life, out of life, from what we consume, from what we possess, from what we accumulate. It was probably heard the, the famous multiple people gotten credit for this, but I, I think I got the first one. It should have been uh, Robert uh, Quinlan. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like, which is just really pithy and just great to say. I thought about it that in light of what, what, um, what the sociologist said and, and what I think emerges out of the scripture, it's, it's a little, I think a little bit more nuanced than that, that we buy things we don't need with, with money we don't have, which is a true thing, but more to get a sense of meaning that we don't know. We've been talking about this on, we're talking about being the kind of people who live out their call in community, right? We spent the entire fall talking about a clarity of purpose to know where and how we're going to invest ourselves. When there's an absence of meaning, the thing that stuff promises is I will give you meaning. It lies to us. John Mark Comer in his great book, a Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, kind of dovetails on this. He says, um, for a lot of people, things aren't just things. They're identities. Shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America, usurping the place previously held by religion. Amazon.com is the new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double-clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. There's a reason the only other God Jesus ever called out by name was Mammon, the God of money, because it's a bad God and a lousy religion. He goes on a few, few paragraphs later to talk about what one, one Wall Street banker who was part of the group of, of, the, of the new... Um, kind of the new marketing, new advertising structure in, in the U.S. One Wall Street banker, he said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be afraid, sorry, people must, people must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old have entirely, have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must, uh, must overshadow his needs. Loved ones, there is a well-oiled, personally curated, multi-billion dollar advertising and marketing industry that is intentionally designed to lie to us by convincing us that if we only had this new product or if we, we only had that popular brand, then, then and finally, then we would be happy or maybe just a little happier, because we'll take that. And it's naive, which is, by the way, what the Bible calls foolishness, to believe that we are not somehow, that we are somehow able to live unaffected by the magnitude of this current and immune to the rhythms of consumption that we're just naturally swimming in by being here. That's some of the problem. 
And what does it result in? Well, I mean, it results in a few key dynamics. The first is debt. Now, if you spend your time sometime reading the Proverbs, which is kind of the, right, the, the grid for how to live well, you know, there's a lot to say about debt. But Dallas Willard, as few can, articulates it clearly. He says, in our current world, a large part of the freedom that comes from simplicity is freedom from the listen, spiritual bondage caused by financial debt. This debt comes from buying things that are far from necessary, and its effects, when the amount is substantial, is to diminish, listen to this, listen to the effects of how he understands this, to diminish our sense of worth, dim our hope for the future, and eliminate our sensitivity to the needs of others. That's the weight you're going to be happier if this is true of you, if you have this. And, and the resulting thing across America, and I did some research, I, the, honestly, the numbers are so depressing, I just didn't want to even say them out loud. But the, the, when you look at like, the, like consumer debt amongst every single individual in America, when you break it down, like it's terrifying. I mean, we're talking $14,000 of credit card debt stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crippling. The consequences are debt. The results are debt. And with that comes worry. Nothing weighs you down like having a sense of, is everything going to be okay? Are the things that I think I have to have, am I going to be able to have them? Is everything going to work out? Very strained and anxious people. Because we've bought the lie, which Jesus speaks straight into in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall I eat? Because this is, this, is, this is what our hearts say, right? What shall I eat? And, and what shall we drink? And what shall we wear? That, that's, that's, that's our internal sense going like, but, but it's not going to work out. For the Gentiles seek after these things, he says, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, that, that phrase alone, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Like that, that's the invitation to freedom. But seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the last, last consequence is, is clutter. There's clutter and, and distraction. The, uh, I read a thing this last week that the Amer average American size home has tripled in the last 50 years. Our homes are, 50, or, are three times larger on average than they were 50 years ago. And yet, uh, we still have 10.6% of households have um, rent a storage unit. Um, not only are homes bigger, but... Um, only 25% of people can't park their cars in their garage. 40% of people say they don't because it's too much of a problem because of all the stuff in the way. Now, I'm seeing the smiles of you going, those of you who can't park your car in your garage right now. This applies to us all, so just so you know. <laughs> so stuff, stuff costs money, right? I mean, that's a, kind of a given. We know this. 
but it's also a distraction. It's a cluttering of our minds and of our hearts. All the things we own take up not just the physical space that they take up in our home, but they also take up a space in our minds. We have to, all of our stuff has to be cleaned and organized and managed and repaired and replaced. When we think about what something costs, how much time we spent not just to earn the money to be able to buy the stuff, but then we also have to manage the stuff when we finally get it. And more money is more problems. There is no doubt about that. That's a simplification of the entire scripture related to this concept. More is not always better, Sabrina says. Sometimes it's just more. Randy Alcorn says that every increased possession adds increased anxiety onto our lives, and, and he's not wrong. We don't realize how much of a burden our possessions end up being. And this is some of the discovery that, I'm, that I've stepped into this week, and I'm kind of going by faith saying, okay, I believe you, that, that, that there's this burden of all of our stuff, and that we don't realize how much of a burden it is until we start removing some of it and, and freeing ourselves from some of these pieces and some of these things. And we begin to experience some of the freedom and the release of the weight from it. Dreaming about our stuff and planning about stuff and acquiring stuff and, and managing stuff, it costs time and energy and, and focus and ultimately ends up can cost our heart. So what do we do? What kind, of, what kind of rhythms can we participate with the Spirit to experience just a greater deal of fruitfulness, of, of peace, and a life that is truly life? Let's look at the perspective for our stuff. A counter-consumption rhythm. Let's call it that. A counter-consumption rhythm of simplicity. Now, the question would be, okay, so is the solution to go back to the Stone Age, right? Should you tear out your indoor plumbing and just go dig a hole in the backyard, you know? Should you sell your car and buy a bike? Should you sell your bike and buy a horse? Should you sell your horse and just walk, right? I mean, where, where, where does this go? Where does this end? Do you, you know, do you just cancel your Amazon account and, like, burn your credit card and effigy? You know, like, is, is, that, the, is that what it's going to, will that do it? The answer is no. It won't do it. Ultimately, it won't do it. There are practices of simplicity we're going to talk about here at the end, but that won't do it. One of my favorite expressions, the enemy's inside the walls. It won't fix the problem because the problem isn't the stuff itself necessarily. That's what we see again in 1 Timothy 9 that I read, 6 that I read earlier. And then listen, okay, listen to the, to, listen to the words, the language of um, just how vivid and um, like almost, I would say, almost aggressive this is, as the Apostle Paul writes. He says, but those who desire to be rich, like not maybe, but no, no, fall into temptation. Oh, in case you know what that looks like, into a snare. Oh, okay, now you know what that means? Okay, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's some pretty intense language. For the love of money, again, very clear, not money, but the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, you hear just the animal nature of this, that some, and this, this is tragic, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the, this is the suffocation of the, of, the, of the word, that the very thing that is life itself becomes suffocated and, and not only has no fruit, but actually causes them to say, you know what, this is not going to work. 
In our confession earlier today, I thought about this, you know, like, Lord, forgive us for the the ways in which we've been angry at you for not coming through in the ways that we thought you should come through with us. And candidly, how much of that has to do with our stuff? God, what are you you doing? You mean my my car broke down? Like, I have a job interview, I'm a sales caller. Like, you, you must not love me. You're against me. Problem, the enemy's inside the wall. Mark, John Mark Comer adds that the issue is not the stuff itself. It's more centered on the fact that we have put no limits on stuff due to that insatiable, well-produced, well-brought-to desire for more and that we still think somehow that things will make us happy. That more things will therefore make us more happy when in actuality we need fewer things. Now, we're in church and I know that you're going like, this is true. This is, this is wise. This is scriptural. Like, more is not better. And what's fascinating though, if we really evaluate our heart is like, and this is what I've had to do this week is I've had to realize like, I don't know that I really believe it all the way. I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to believe it, but I don't know that I believe it, believe it. And, and I suspect if that's, if that's true of me, I mean, it's probably true of you too. Like that we, we, we know it's supposed to be truer in us than it actually is. Which is why this is way insipid. It's, it's again, it's, it's like the enemy's inside. And yet the warning, the invitation to flee is palpable. And by the way, I'm not talking about a, a vow of poverty here. That's, not, not, that's nothing of what we're talking about. And by the way, I don't think we should ever glamorize poverty as like something that's really noble and difficult. Like some of what the gospel invites us to be as people are people that draw and pull people out of poverty into a place of flourishing and, and life. So there have been things written that like poverty is the way to be. And it's, no, it's very difficult. And those of you who've grown up and experienced poverty, you know that's the case. But there's something fascinating though that... And people that are brought out of poverty, like they are happier. There actually is a degree of satisfaction and of, but only to a certain point. There was a, an astonishing um, study that was done by a couple of professors out of Princeton. One was a, a Nobel winning psychiatrist or psychologist and another one was an economist and they teamed together on the study of over 450,000 participants, which is a lot of people. And the study concluded that the, the overall well-being, a.k.a. happiness, that the, our overall well-being does, in fact, rise as our income rises. Well, that seems like that's inconsistent with what you just said. But only to a point. An actual dollar amount is what they were able to realize. There's a dollar amount that across the board, something changes. And at that dollar amount, I'm not going to give it to you yet because you're wondering, At that line, we either plateau or surprisingly, happiness and satisfaction begins to decline. The amount is $75,000 for a household. That's the magic number. That's the magic line that across the nation they found. This is uh, Dr. Deaton, who's the economist in the project. This is what he said. He said, no matter where you live, no matter if you're in the city or in the country, 
your emotional well-being is as good as it's going to get at $75,000. And money's not going to make it any better beyond that point. It's like you hit, I love, I love when scientists go talk about God's stuff without realizing, it's like you hit some sort of ceiling and you can't get emotional well-being much higher just by having more money. Like how fascinating is that? This is just people, right? This is just people being surveyed, playing it, and like this is the reality of what it means. What this is trying to tell us basically is that once you hit middle class, roughly, more money and more stuff can't buy you what it actually promised by everyone and everything that is going to make you happier. That's going to make me happier. Even though it, it's compelling. So what's the biblical solution? All these messages are coming in from the outside and they are compelling, right? Do you want meaning? Drive a Tahoe, right? I mean, like, you want your life to be about something? Like, this lipstick will change everything. Everyone will want you. Like, I mean, right, it's, it's an invitation. So we're being sold all day long and we all know it and we're like, I'm better than that. It's like, no, we're not. Like, right, you look up a pair of shoes and then it follows you on every app you're ever on, right? Until you're like, fine, <laughs> right? I mean, like, have you ever just bought something just to get it off that feed? I mean, I haven't. I just hear of people who have. <laughs> so it's coming at us from the outside, and we all know it. And, and I, again, I think we're, we're probably more naive than we, than we than, well, we're more naive than we really should be about the, its power on us. But as I said, it's also coming from within. And so what does the Bible invite us into? Like, what is, some of its, what is the solution to this thing? 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And how do we get that? Well, let's look at the perspective. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. One of the ways in which contentment can find root is understanding you started with nothing, aka you, you, you were nothing, and at the end you're not going to be able to take anything with you. Whatever you accumulated, whatever meaning you tried to acquire through this life can't follow you if it's born and based in stuff. But if we have food and clothing, maybe shelter too, with these we will be content. Contentment's a mindset. It's, it's, a, it's an approach to life, and, and therefore simplicity is the discipline or the rhythm that fosters contentment. Paul goes at it again in Philippians chapter 4. He says, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. This is Paul in prison. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Contentment doesn't change based on those situations. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, which I love, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is that? Is it hanging on to as much stuff as possible? Is it pretending like it doesn't matter and being ascetic and just getting rid of everything? No. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
I'm content because I have my, my eyes focused on something else so that when my circumstances change fundamentally, when my stuff comes or when my stuff goes, I'm not thrown off. I have a ballast. I'm stable. And by the way, contentment isn't a, a Buddhist influence, infusion of, of denial where, where we hate our desires. Rather, it's, it's, a, it's living in a way that our unavoidable experiences of unmet desires, which we all have, no longer restrain our happiness and joy. Where the ache of living in a world where when we get the thing that, if we thought if we got that, everything would be somehow better and it isn't, doesn't ultimately undo us. Contentment. Well, how, how, how do we move towards contentment? What are the steps towards contentment? Be contented. Like, how do we move in that direction, right? Well, that's where, the, that's where the rhythm of simplicity comes in. Now, some people have simplicity thrust upon them, right? I mean, if you lived in certain contexts or certain seasons of the history of the world, like, simplicity was what you had. You had your one bowl, and you had your one cup, and you, know, you had your one shelter, and you had your one donkey, and, that, and so you had what you had. But that's not our world anymore. And the way the world is constructed for us, we have to lean in in a fundamentally new direction. And so some of these disciplines which, which, and rhythms of, of simplicity, which maybe have been you know, for a certain set of people back in you know, the 1300s, or, are, are true for every one of us because of the context in which we live. Simplicity, and some people call it minimalism, is is not living with nothing. Let's be incredibly clear. It's not living with nothing. Rather, it's simply living with less. Uh, Joshua Becker, who's a, a former pastor and author, uh, he's actually releasing a new book. I heard a podcast with him, which was fascinating. But he, uh, he, his kind of definition of minimalism is super helpful. He says, it's the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. So it's the, it's the promotion of that which is most important, most valuable, most, most, most significant, less, leaving, out, leaving out meaning, having purpose, following the call that God's put on our life, and removing the things that keep us from going in that direction. And he says that there's a surprising impact of this as you walk through it. As your life gets simpler, you get more focused on purpose. You get more centered on your meaning, on how God has shaped you and formed you. So minimalism or simplicity is centered around the, our values, what, what's important, not reduction, not just cutting stuff out for cutting stuff out's sake. The goal of simplicity is, is to figure out what matters most in our life and then to eliminate any item or distraction that doesn't serve that goal. Dallas Willard's definition is that simplicity is the arrangement of life. He says it so beautifully. Simplicity is the arrangement of life around a few consistent purposes, explicitly excluding what is not necessary to human well-being. 
And what happens with simplicity, the reason why it has effect is that it, it, it has a way, as we, as we choose simplicity, and I'll walk you through some of what that looks like, it has a way of fighting against that, that, that futility that's, that's, that's trying to, that we're, that we're being sold regularly, that our hearts want to believe in, that, that somehow I can find meaning in it. Because as I take something and say, okay, you know, I'm, not, I'm actually going to simplify this. I'm not going to, I'm going to get rid of these things. I'm actually going to try and make my life move and, and, and go, go about the world lightly. Like treading lightly with the things that I have thoughtfully. There's an intentionality that allows us to live a free, uncluttered, undistracted life. And the other thing about simplicity is it assaults our unrelenting drive for comfort believing that somehow I just want to be more comfortable physically, I want to be more comfortable um, relationally, I want to be more, I, mean, I want everything to be a, a kind of our addiction to convenience, even to efficiency. Simplicity protects us from envy and from hoarding. If we're willing to take our things and be able to say, hey, does this matter to me? Is this useful? Is this beautiful? If it's not, then I can, I can get rid of this. Or I don't have to use this anymore. If it's, if it's light in our hands, well, then we're not hoarding and we're not envying. Have you ever known someone who struggled with hoarding? And by the way, I hate the TV shows that, like, that those hoarding shows. I think that's the worst thing in the world. It's like, this is a really tragic reality for people's lives, and it's going with cameras. Ugh. Anyway, that's not my sermon, but in my beef. Um, but, like, but, the, but the amount of envy that's also connected there, that they go together, it's like, here's all this stuff, and you still somehow don't have enough. It, they're built in together. But simplicity is actually the releasing of envy. It's an antidote to anxiety. You see, as we, as we take the things we have and say, okay, does this, th- this doesn't define me. This is not a measure of who I am. Do I keep it or do I get rid of it? Do I sell it, give it away? If, if it's not mine, well then suddenly that's true of all things. And, and it frees me from the anxiety that this thing is going to do the thing or if I don't have this book that I, that I haven't read yet but it's been on my shelf and I don't have any room for it that, that I might read it at some point one day so let's keep all my stuff around somehow. It frees us from the anxiety. It's a, an active declaration that God, you're enough. What you have is enough. And, and I, would, I, would, I would venture to say that simplicity is the pathway to generosity. As I've been reading and, and reflecting on this and, and realizing it's basically the two sides of the same coin, right? Simplicity is on one side about the stuff we have and generosity is about the things that we would give away. So they're really the two sides of the same coin. But it's very difficult to be truly generous when we're living a cluttered, distracted, stuff life. And some people, we have the means to be, to be able to give and still have. And, and some of us have that freedom to be able to do that. We have actually have a lot, of, we have margin, and so we have a bunch of stuff that's maybe cluttering and distracting our hearts and minds, but we have some space that we give. And what I would say is actually, I think the pathway to true generosity is, is through simplicity, especially in our cultural context. That's the question I'm asking myself is, as I step into this with the Lord. And so, let's talk about some, some, just some basic practices of simplicity with our stuff. How, how, what is the practice of simplicity and, and what does it look like? Like down on the ground, like when you go home today or this week. Well, um, one is <laughs> start 
simplifying simple things. Small areas, small things. Now, this is not spring cleaning, by the way. If you're like, yes, sitting next to my husband, we're going to the garage this afternoon because Matt said we need to be simple. It's not spring cleaning, okay? Now, there's probably some clutter dynamics there I play. This is not like an organizational structure, right? Get more bins so stuff fits better. Like, that's not the point. <laughs> it's not an ad for the, for the uh, let's say, container store, yes. Which, that's the most overpriced plastic ever. But anyway, um, start with your car. Uh, honestly, look at the—this this was fascinating to me this week. L- looking, at, looking at the apps on my phone, like, like ruthless elimination of apps is what I would call that. Just going through and being like, okay, what, what is this noise? Like, what belongs and what doesn't? What have I not used? Not, so go through, go through your—this is, this is a disposition of the heart that says, I'm not going to hoard and hang on to stuff that's actually distracting me. I did a closet, simple, quick purge, just going through going like, haven't worn that, haven't worn that, doesn't fit, doesn't fit, doesn't worn that, and just like, this is nonsense. I, the, there's a simple way of going about, so cl- going through your closet. Again, not spring cleaning. Your bookshelves, collectibles, uh, toys. Those of you who have kids, and I know, I know you know this, some free parenting advice that none of you asked for, um, if you notice, those of you who have small children, if you put like 40 things on the ground, your kids go play with the light switch, right? That's how it works, right? It's just too many things. You actually, no one wants to play with that many things. If you put three things on the ground or two things on the ground, they'll actually play with those things. And so it's almost like they're little people like us. <laughs> and they function best when things are simple and clear, and they know what something is for. So I don't know, maybe help your kids and help yourself on that. Here's a couple of counsels from, uh, from John Mark's book. He says, um, before buying something, ask yourself, what is the true cost of this? Not, not just what's the dollar cost of the item, but like what's it gonna cost to maintain it? I had a motorcycle that eventually I had to get rid of because I don't know, it was costing me insurance and all kinds of stuff. I just wasn't riding it that much anymore. Like, it had been a great time for me with my kids when they were younger. We'd go on rides. It was family. It was, and then they got old. They didn't want to ride with me anymore. And it's like, why is this here? So there's the costs that go beyond that, the maintain, maintenance. Let's add value to my life and help me enjoy God and the things that matter most. Or is this just going to be a distraction to what really matters? That's before buying. Uh, never impulse buy. Which I know is like saying, don't be an American, but I'm just saying, like, you know, like, just don't impulse. But like, take a, the, the recommendation, the insight was take a week. You're about, you, that spare shoes that's chasing you down, just give it a week. Just give it a week and see where your heart goes, what, what maybe the promise it can't yield gives. Um, when you buy, opt for fewer, better things. This is one of the, my favorite quotes, um, English designer William Morris. He has great insight. He says, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. I think that is a very clear, that's simplicity spiritually in a very clear way, that you know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. If you add something, take something out. And one of the things that I thought was beautiful is the idea of simplifying in community, which I kind of drew from a couple of different places. The idea of that we, 
that we have this kind of weird idea that we have to own it instead of being able to borrow it? And, and, and what would a community of people look like if it was like, well, I have a chainsaw, and Morgan, you need a chainsaw? You can borrow my chainsaw. I won't come over and cut stuff, but I'm just like, but I'll, you can have my chainsaw for the day, or like, what would it look like as a community to, to, to even, I, one guy was a friend of mine, he was like, he's like, what if we just bought stuff together? Like four or five of us get a pressure washer, you know, we just take turns using it, and we kind of pool it, and if it breaks, you know, we all pay to cover it, and it's like, yeah, that's too much, you know. We don't, we don't want to be that intertwined, you know, like you move, and you're taking the pressure washer, you know, it just got complicated, you know. But, but, but seriously, but doesn't that have that, I mean, that's just like the ultimate reality, like, no, what would it look like to communally live with our things, you know, like that what, what's mine is yours, and John Mark talked about how he has a buddy of his. This is, this is like countercultural, so I'm going to freak you all out for a second. But he and his buddy, they, his name's Matt, uh, they work out their budget together. So they actually work their family budgets out together and show each other and work it out together. Which is, I don't, I've never met anybody who's done that. Like, that's some, like, courage at the, like, bottom level. Um, and then they have a rule that they can't spend $1,000 without the other person approving it. Right? It's basically saying, like, hey... Talk to me about this, right? This is not a, this is not the law, but it's the principle of saying, listen, we're not going to impulse buy some stuff, and we're not going to, but hey, tell me a little bit about what you're wanting to invest in, and how is this going to contribute, because we have the same vision of flourishing, of following God and the things that really matter. We want our lives to have meaning and purpose, and so how do we do this together with each other, living out our call in community? That's the thing. Simplicity is going to look differently for everyone. If you're a teacher, if you're a plumber, if you're a writer, if you're a CEO, like simplicity will look different based on how your life works and how the things that you own serve the purpose that God's given you. Which, of course, begs the question, like, what are the purposes God's given you? Which is one of the reasons I love simplicity, because if you don't have that answer, then you're just moving stuff around or getting rid of a bunch of stuff and decluttering. That's not the goal. It's really saying, like, I'm, I feel clear and clear about what it means for me to move into the world in a way that lives out my purpose and responds to the calling God has on my life. And so this belongs, and this doesn't. I mean, it's nice, and I like it, but it doesn't belong. It's not about decluttering our garage, our toy bins, or closets but really fundamentally it's about decluttering our life, decluttering our heart. All I kept thinking about as I was reflecting on this about my own heart and life and I thought just imagine if we were the kind of people who, who were clear about our sense of calling and then paired that with, with the stuff that we own to, to where there was a, an intentional streamlining of the way in which God is sending us out and moving us into the world. If, if, there, was a, if there was a clarity around when your neighbor asks you, hey, so it looks like you guys got a new car, that you actually had a story with that, about how, how it fits within the context, within the movement of God. Hey, it looks like you, got, you added a whiteboard, which is necess- necessary for me, just so we're clear. Um, you have a whiteboard in your office, a big one. Yes, indeed. It's necessary for my life. Now, for many of you, you don't need whiteboards. You don't even know how to use them. Like, it's okay. It's okay. We teach classes. But that's not, your, that's, not how it, that's not the movement of God in your life. And so, like, loved ones, like, let us reevaluate the way in which God is called and moving us. And how is the stuff that we have not a detraction from that, but actually something that's propelling us towards it? God's not against your stuff. He, we just read it. He gave us all things to enjoy. He's not a curmudgeon. 
at all. And yet, wealth will steal your heart. That's also true. So what if we were the kind of people that were free in that way? I had a, as I was thinking about moving to the table, you know, and thinking, okay, what, what, is the, how do, what do we hold in our hearts and our minds as we come to this meal? In light of this, right? In light of our stuff. This is physical stuff. We have our physical stuff. And I just kept thinking about how, like, we, we, serve, we serve a king who, who literally stripped all things, right? In the end, was stripped of all his things, and which apparently were also pretty nice things because they were, like, you know, they cast lots for it. So they're valuable things. Jesus wasn't a pauper. He was cared for. He was well cared for by wealthy women, in particular. Um, so, so he wasn't a pauper, but he lived a simple life. Having left the glories and the riches of heaven, he, he came, he, as Scripture says, he emptied himself, right? And he, he stripped all the way down, and the stripping for him went all the way down to the bone and went all the way down to the reality of that God forsook him. And he forsook him, so this is what hit me, is I realized, you know, we, we come into the world with nothing, right, and we leave with nothing. It's exactly what we just read. But we also come into the world forsaken, enemies of God. And, and the difference between how we leave the world is actually this right here. It's not just the reality of like, you know, by, you know, by and by, but, but present tense, like that Christ has given himself to us fully. Like you want meaning? Like the king of king is calling you son and daughter. Like it is well with your soul. There is not a thing that you need that he doesn't know about all of them and is eager to give them to you. And so that's, that's the one that we come to remember. And, and if, you're, if you're wondering, does he have my best interest? Can I let go of this? This tells you yes. This tells you yes, because he did this for you, that it may be well with your soul. So let's pray. Father, as we come, as we receive these elements, as we remember the, the unfathomable reality that you, that you are stripped of all things willingly for us, so that not simplicity, but, but actually flourishing and fullness of heart and life could be given to us in Christ Jesus. So we, we come to this meal today, and we want to receive it with joy and with a, with a grateful heart. We want to be the kind of people that are, that are contented in what you have done for us and find our measure of, of meaning and purpose in who you've made us to be in Christ. Like This is what defines us. This is what defines us. And we're grateful. Thank you that you love us. This meal is a meal reminding us of how loved we are, and so we receive that love, find our satisfaction in it, and then, Lord, desire to chase after you with everything we have and everything we need to give away. And we pray this in Christ. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this is your meal, a meal of gratitude and of grace, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ.